Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Universal designs a topic that we've discussed many times here on Autism Stories and how it can be helpful to all different brain types. However, we haven't gotten too much in-depth with universal design and how it relates to healthcare. That's why I'm excited to talk with Dr. Mel Hauser, who discusses how she uses universal design in her practice. We also talk about her nonprofit, All Brains Belong VT, and what she wishes medical school and medical training had taught her. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Well, Mel, I want to thank you so much for joining me today here on Autism Stories. Absolutely. It's great to be, great to be here. I wanted to start off like I do with so many of our guests and learn about your story. Where in the autistic community does your story begin? Well, you know, I think like many late identified adults, I received my autism diagnosis in the context of autistic burnout. And ironically, the day I received my diagnosis was the two year anniversary of my child's diagnosis, like to the day. And so I would say that, that my story Probably, I should say it really began when I became a parent six years ago, where, you know, here I was, a family doctor taking care of babies through older adults, but, like, I had a background in child development. That was my thing. So, like, I thought I knew what I was doing, but my baby <laughs> had other perceptions. Like, she made it clear in no uncertain terms that our environment was not a match for her needs and that turns out like all my medical training was in fact useless which um you know uh, symbolically like now we know that we know that healthcare providers training is really an outdated paradigm of what autistic people really need and so you know it was my journey toward a new way of being in the world let alone discovering my own brain was thanks to my my now 5 year old now, you're a doctor, and you've created a wonderful nonprofit, All Brains Belong VT, that uses uh, universal design principles to help neurodivergent people access proper health care. So prior to um, starting your nonprofit, what were some of these barriers you saw in helping neurodivergent patients to get the care that they need? Yeah, thank you for thank you for that question. You know, even when I was in general primary care practice, I was spending most of my time helping neurodivergent patients problem solve life outside the exam room. So accessing what they needed in education, accessing employment that met their needs, making friends, like all of the things that the healthcare system largely designates as separate from health and it always just like made made no sense to me because health is all of these different things and when we think about you know the 
so many defaults in society in healthcare, in school and employment and like social culture, like they're just, they're not designed with our needs in mind and therefore our, you know, barriers to access are everywhere. And, you know, I think that this has a profoundly harmful impact on health. But like there was this one critical day I should mention, I went to pick up my then four-year-old from preschool and I saw her literally on the perimeter of the playground, like back into the corner, like on the side. Like I was just like, this is symbolically just showing me that like this, this, uh-uh, no, this is not the world she's going to grow up in. And then thereafter, I learned for the first time that the average life expectancy of an autistic adult was 36 to 54 years of age. And I was 37. And like, legit, like really, I flipped my lid. I flipped my lid. I quit my job. And I just felt this like profound urgency to do something to just shift all of it, all of it so that, you know, Luna could grow up in a world that was different from this one and shift the whole, like zooming way out, like the whole big picture, the whole community conversation on neurodiversity and inclusion just needed like a complete rehaul. Now I've known uh, many people who wanted to start their own nonprofit, but it was, you know, just too overwhelming of a process and, you know, the nonprofit never really got created. I think there's a lot of great ideas out there. So I think much of this is kind of relating to executive functioning. What was kind of your experience with this in creating All Brains Belong VT? I really want to thank you for this question. Like, nobody's ever asked me that. And in full transparency, not only has this been hard, it's still hard. Every day is hard. And I, you know, I just want to like name that. And I try to just be authentic whenever I talk about this, you know, with anyone, people I know well, or people I'm just meeting for the first time, because I think that why not? Like, let's just be authentic and real. Cause I think, you know, with my patient, there's this myth that other people really have it all together. And I'm just going to come right and say it. I don't have it all together. This is really hard. But the best way I can answer your question is, you know, I think that all of my many layers of privilege one of these layers is that I actually understand my brain and my access needs. I have, like, that's like a, a fundamental premise that most people don't have access to understand their access needs. Like, that's like from the ground up. Like, if you don't know what your needs are, how can you design a life based on them? And when you've grown up being told that, like, you don't, your needs don't matter. And in fact, like, there's something wrong with you for having needs. Like, that's the first hurdle, right? And so, you know, yes, all right. So I understand my brain and my access needs. But the other part of privilege is that because I'm a healthcare provider who was already, even before starting this organization, already focusing on supporting neurodivergent kids and adults and usually multi-generational families, I knew how to get help when I was struggling. So that's a whole other layer of privilege that most people don't have. And by Quitting my job and breaking out of the restrictive way of practicing care, the other layer of privilege is autonomy. I have autonomy to meet my own access needs. Like all three of those buckets, if you don't have those, it's so, so, so hard because the executive functioning load is intense. I had this autonomy to structure all the containers I needed. And I, I still, you know, said we, we, uh, last week was our one year anniversary. I shift those containers regularly because one of my access needs is novelty. I have a team 
you know, I worked as a volunteer doctor for the first four months and then over time hired part-time staff who like wanted to join in the movement and this big picture re completely reimagining some of the major structures of society. But like the day-to-day -day life is all about co-regulation with that team. And we really have a culture of interdependence here where we're all supporting one another to meet all of our access needs, like individually and collectively. You know, you're talking about autonomy. That's probably my favorite word in the English language. And I'm just wondering, you know, that is definitely a privilege that people have when they have autonomy. How much do you see like being a medical doctor as part of your autonomy? I would say that, you know, there's a lot of people within the healthcare system who recognize that there's so much that's wrong with it. But in my experience, it's hard to balance autonomy. And if you have a vision of equity, which I do, it's really important to me that people can access it. So like, I couldn't just like start up private practice and take cash because like there's going to be a split between people who get to access that and people who don't. So most of my patients have Medicaid and Medicare. We take, you know, we take most commercial insurances too, but most of our people, you know, have Medicaid and Medicare. And I built the, like the autonomy piece is that my profession is a profession that can bill health insurance. I am so grateful for that privilege because that's what affords me autonomy to do my work is that there's another way that people can access it. So for our healthcare programs, we build health insurance for our community programs. They're all free. And that's the model that I wanted. It's like what I need to feel fulfilled in my world. And so the only way that that's possible is because I can build health insurance for the healthcare programs. And that thank goodness the message has really resonated with the community in terms of all our community programs are funded by, you know, the generosity of, you know, philanthropic support from community members. And that's how, that's how we get things done here. Now, not far behind on my list of favorite words or phrases behind autonomy is universal design. You know, universal design principles, I think, are so critical because they truly help everyone. So you started All Brains Belong VT that uses these principles for healthcare and uh, community connection. How do you use universal design in relation to healthcare? So when I think about universal design, when I'm describing this to people who have never really kind of thought about it before, when I think about just not having any defaults. So everything we do, we offer in multiple different ways with the idea that if you give people multiple flexible options for engagement, you are honoring their autonomy to pick and choose what works best for them. And so, you know, because when I think about it, anytime you have a default, anyone whose brain learns, thinks, processes, communicates differently than that default is always going to feel other. And when we launched the message that I try to always focus on is that of inclusion. And anytime you are going to other people for not functioning in the default way, they're going to feel other. They're not going to feel included. 
And so the idea with universal design is just not having any defaults, offering a menu to all people. And so in healthcare, you know, you're picking your setting, you're picking your furniture, you're picking your lighting, you're mm-hmm. picking your, you know, a range of sensory and executive functioning communication supports. And we offer this to all the patients, not just people who are, you know, identifying a dis- you know, as having a disability and requesting accommodations. And we do that also, but it is, this is everyone, you know, we have people patients here who wouldn't necessarily identify as neurodivergent they come here because they like autonomy and flexibility because as you said it benefits everyone now one aspect of healthcare is uh getting vaccinations and that's definitely been an increase due to you know covid and all the vaccinations from, from this time period so from what I understand, um, your nonprofit developed a model to make sure these vaccinations are neuroinclusive. I'd love to uh, learn more about that model. Totally. One week before we launched last year, you know, a lot of this is like chasing dopamine. I was like, wouldn't it be really cool to create a free program to teach all the people what we do and just make it available for free? And so we like, we literally like did this before we even really even opened. And it was really taking our menu of universal design for healthcare and applying it to vaccination, you know, because like, you know, there are so many people who can't access vaccination because it's simply too stressful and it's not an optional kind of stress that you can just like suck it up and push through. Like it's, it's not optional. It's not accessible because you don't feel safe. And if you don't feel safe, you can't do the thing. What this looks like is everybody, not just people again, who are, you know, identifying as having a disability and requesting accommodations, a menu for everybody. You pick your setting inside, outside, or in your car, and like a menu for what happens before, during, after, you know, how do you want to receive information? Kinds of sensory supports do you need? Even, you know, like there's a section where we ask, like, what do you love? So for example, if there's a kid who loves dragons, you know, we're gonna have, you know, a dragon video playing as they walk in the door and a dragon song playing because it's not just it's not distracting them, it's actually giving them dopamine. When your monotromic focus is dragons and the dragons are there, it's actually going to impact your sensory processing. Things are going to hurt less when you have dopamine. So, it, I mean, it's very exciting to hear you talk about this, hear a doctor talk about these things. I'm curious, like in your local community, what's been the feedback? Have you heard much feedback from the medical community in terms of what you're doing? Yeah, you know, I think that most healthcare providers like have never thought about this before and so I don't I you know I think think about the brain science of advocacy of social justice you know it's kind of it's fairly predictable that when you tell people they're doing it wrong they flip their lids so that's why I come at this from the lens of inclusion of like did you know that there's not a default brain like, I mean, that's like new information based on the paradigm that most medical professionals are trained in. And so, you know, through that lens, the reception's been really positive. And, you know, we train, you mentioned, you mentioned the model for universal design for vaccination. We train other healthcare practices in that, you know, because like it's in healthcare, like so many systems, there's so many like assumptions that they're just wrong. 
I call them brain rules. Like they're not world rules, but like the brain rules, like as a, as a medical student, I was, I was literally told it is normal for kids to cry during healthcare appointments. And that always viscerally felt gross to me. And I just like never bought it. But that's like literally what is thought about in so many places. It's like, oh, did you know you can actually create a positive healthcare experience and not traumatize the sweet little loves? Like, I mean, that's new information for a lot of people. And we think about adults, you know, so, so in my practice, you know, yeah, some, you know, some of the people who come here, they know they're neurodivergent or they're wondering if they're neurodivergent, but a lot of the people who come here, they come because their needs were not met by the traditional healthcare model. And so they come here because they just, they're suffering. Their health is suffering and no one's been able to help them. And no one has kind of like, there's so much healthcare trauma, you know, where people are just invalidated and dismissed and they don't feel safe to like really describe in the way that works for them what's going on. And when they have that experience, it's fairly easy to identify what's going on. And often that's the pathway that they discover their, about their brains is through the context of their multi-organ system, like neuroimmune stuff like hypermobility and dysautonomia and some of the really common conditions in autistic adults. So healthcare kind of starts when we come into the world when we're born. So, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, you, um, in addition to being a doctor, you're a parent. So I'm wondering, kind of like looking back from maybe that lens, how do you view medical school and medical training? And maybe what do you wish they would have taught you? I mean, it needs a whole rehaul. It needs a total rehaul. I was trained in this very deficit-based paradigm of really, really stigmatized narrative. And that's how most medical doctors are trained. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I did a training for mental health therapists and on neurocultural competency. And I said to my five-year-old, I'm like, hey, what should I tell them? You know, I'm doing another neurocultural competency training. And the five-year-old says, tell them there's no right way to be a person. That's my baby. That's my baby who has known about her brain since she's two and has grown up in a neurodiversity affirming household. So that's how I'd answer your question. I wish that medical education delivered the message that there's no right way to be a person because we are trained in, you know, this, there's one default set of development. It's linear. This is the correct way to do it. Anything else is bad. It needs to be cured, fixed. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's offensive. All of it. So healthcare to me is about the quality of life. Hopefully we're going to be living into our 70s and 80s. But, you know, you, you were talking about earlier about life expectancy for us in the autistic community isn't, isn't very good. And that living to that age doesn't, far too often doesn't happen. So I know one of the biggest causes of this is cardiovascular disease. So what do you see doctors' role in starting to reduce this as a leading cause of death for so far too often for autistics? Yeah, I mean, if I were going to pick one thing that needs to be completely rehauled, the healthcare system's narrative of autism is itself a barrier to healthcare. 
you know, how I was trained in that deficit-based lens and, like, was not trained, but the DSM-5 criteria for autism, those are autistic stress behaviors. Like, that's what those, that's what those, the stereotypes are. It's, 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 wouldn't it be really great if we could figure out, if people can understand their true authentic selves and their access needs without reaching such levels of profound dysregulation. So like that, that's how I would say that. And because of that really stigmatizing narrative, I think the lens that healthcare providers are viewing their patients, I think really matters. You know, when someone views a person through a deficit-based lens, I don't know, I can walk into a room, I can feel the vibe of someone viewing me through a deficit-based lens. And like right there, I don't feel safe. And so many people have that experience. So there's like the, um, and, and, and you know, when, when, even when you think about the research on the barriers to healthcare access, and one of the studies I can send it to you that I, that was very instructive to me in designing my model here at All Brings Belong was Darty et al. in 2021 uh, surveyed primary care patients on what are your barriers to accessing healthcare and broke, they broke this up into three buckets of things in the environment, things in the system, things like the provider, things with the provider, including like attitudes and communication. So provider attitudes and knowledge are are inadequate. And so uh, when, when you mentioned cardiovascular disease, I mean, there's no training on autistic physiology. Like it's not thought about that we actually have different physiology in my practice. And, you know, I knew, I knew about some of this because I was mostly caring for neurodivergent patients in my general practice. I knew about, you know, a lot of the common associations, hypermobility spectrum disorders, or either Stanlos, dysautonomia, migraine, short of sleep apnea. These things are common. And like, you know, it's known that autistic people that we have more of these things, but until I had a practice that was almost all neurodivergent people. I didn't really get it that when you really zoom out, there's a big constellation. So 70% of my patients have long COVID or long COVID-like conditions. So people come here because their needs were not being met in other settings. And what those people all have in common is that they have multi-organ system, connective tissue, including, you know, uh, blood vessel differences. So when you talk about cardiovascular disease, if you don't know that, and I didn't know that, I think given that premature cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of death for autistic people, we have to look at that. We have to talk about that. And so, and in fact, one of the things my non, one of our community projects that Auburn's Belong is doing, and, you know, we're raising money to produce free educational materials because we're, you know, we're doing this for our own community, but I want this to just be free and on the website of like, how do you manage this stuff? Like we actually, we're treating long COVID all day long here. We don't, we, we're like learning a whole lot of things that, that are actually, they actually work. It, I'm fascinated to hear that because actually earlier today, I went to a I supported someone going to a medical appointment who's had an autistic woman who's had long COVID for a year and a half. And she really hasn't been given any answers to like what's going on. You know, they had her go through some testing, but the testing didn't really show anything abnormal. So like, what's been your experience in working with um, neurodivergent patients who have long COVID? Yeah, and I, I think the first and foremost, it's to recognize that 
a lot of people, medical people, believe that long COVID is not like a new thing. It's a bigger picture of autoimmune disease that's kicked off by COVID. So autoimmune disease is commonly triggered by any assault to your immune system, whether that be infection, surgery, pregnancy, concussion. There's like a whole list of things. So a lot of the people here who have this, they had like brewing low levels of this, and then they got COVID. And then, so it's about like, you know, I don't like when I see all over, you know, like yesterday, somebody sent me this 88 page, like federal document about long COVID management, 88 pages, literally not one strategy for management, 88 pages. All it does is just talk about how long COVID's really bad and how like, we really need like treatment and research. I'm like, dude, I'm like doing this. Like right now it's like happening right now. We're just doing it. So this is, if you, medicine is so fragmented and so siloed that of course it would look like it's its own thing, but it's like zooming out and learning from multiple different perspectives. So like ABB has a, we call ourselves, so Auburn's Belong has an interdisciplinary task force, you know, um, multiple specialties, physicians, physical therapists, occupational therapists, various integrative medicine practitioners, you know, complementary alternative healers to really be, all right, let's put everything together and look at, okay, so we know that each part of this construct has some identified strategies, but some of those strategies actually make the other parts of the big picture worse. So for example, if somebody has chronic pain and they get put on a muscle relaxant, if you didn't know that they also had sleep apnea, well, now you made their connective tissue floppier, and so their airway collapsed more, and so their oxygen levels dropped more, which made their dysautonomia worse, which made their pain worse. And so, like, you have to zoom out and treat the whole thing. The lens that we have found most helpful here is learning everything we can about mast cell activation. And it's known that autistic people have more mast cell activation or mast cell dysfunction, whether you have that diagnosis or not. And so... That's how we treat long COVID is through that lens. And a lot of these treatments are like over-the-counter medicines and supplements. We may, in fact, be making this more complicated. Really, I think that there's so much unlearning to do. More is not more. Fancier and more expensive is not better. And I think the other thing that we're really learning from is like, We've got, the model here is really that of a community village. It's a village of like, everybody here has this. I have this. We're all just learning and healing together. And that's like pooling the, you know, really elevating the experience of autistic people. Yeah, this, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I've tried. This is what's worked. This is what made things worse. And, you know, zooming way out and saying, okay, there's some patterns here. And using the natural strengths of autistic brains to, to spot those patterns and learn from them. Now, you're just talking about community village, which I think is so critical. You know, community is, I think, essential in building programs that are inclusive enough so autistic and neurodivergent folks can get their cardiovascular needs met. 
What do you see as doctors and hospitals' responsibilities in working with communities and helping to build these programs? Because doctors can't do it in hospitals just by themselves. Yeah, I think that it's really about recognizing the limitations and like saying, I don't know. There are so many patients who have been told, okay, well, good good news, your testing is normal. And you're like, that doesn't help, like, literally at all because I'm suffering, right? That's like, I wonder if that kind of played out in the, in the visit you supported today. But, you know, like, th- th- just, it's okay to say, I don't know, and I'm going to try to learn. You know, I've told my patients all year, you know, I have, I have no idea how to treat long COVID, but I'm going to learn with you. And that's, I mean, that's what we've been doing together. And I think there is also this when you recognize many of the many of the components of long COVID have to do with the autonomic nervous system or the automatic nervous system functions like that blood pressure, heart rate, you know, body temperature, automatic things and the immune system. And so when you think about the, you know, the nervous system and the immune system, what they have, they communicate to each other. But what they have in common is they're trying to keep us safe. And what we're finding is that so many neurodivergent people are in environments that are not safe physically, emotionally, you know, like all socially and just like when your environment is not affording you access, it feels terrible and it directly harms your health. And so, so much of this is about, and again, this is privilege, wherever one can, saying no to unsafe environments. And again, that intersects so much with your autonomy question earlier. And it's so, it's so hard. And there are environments where you can't just like quit your job. You like have to just like you need money to live. And when you also think about the multiple different ways in which human beings are othered, and when you think about gender and sexuality, divergence and race and ethnicity and like all of the, all of the things, you're going to be more likely to be dysregulated because how could you not be? You're being actively harmed. So the more different ways you're being harmed, the more dysregulated you're going to be. And uh, yeah, I have one last question. Beyond this interview, I'm sure people are going to want to learn how they could maybe get in contact with you. How can they learn about you and All Brains Belong? Sure. We'd love for your listeners to connect with our community. All of our community programs are free. So if you go to allbrainsbelong.org, uh, and you click, you click community, you'll see community programs. And so like, uh, I think the most fun for adults is Brain Club on Tuesday nights at 6 p.m. Eastern. It's a weekly community conversation on like everyday brain life stuff. Like last night was on neuroinclusive employment. And they're all recorded if you can't make it live. And the past year's worth of archives are all available for free. So uh, speaking of executive functioning, I often forget that social media exists, but we, we have social media accounts. I'd say that probably Instagram and Facebook are our most active. And so we'd love, love to connect with you there. And we have a whole campaign now reimagining what's possible with some like free events that go along with that to just get the word out. Like we have a virtual New Year's Eve. It's, you know, it's, it's by donation only, but so you can join for free with music and a cartoon. 
cartoonist and a ring club. Anyway, so it's, it's so we'd love for people to connect. Well, I think you've convinced me that I need to move to Vermont. <laughs> and, and, no, but, you, but, but, but all the community programs are virtual. You don't even have to move here. That's you wonderful. That's from where you are. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I will definitely be checking them out. So, uh, Mel, I really appreciate your time, and uh, thanks so much for having this important conversation with me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Doug. Thanks so much to Dr. Hauser for the conversation. To learn more about Dr. Hauser and All Brains Belong VT, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. So this is the part of the episode where I get to tell you about Autism Personal Coach and how we can help be helpful in your life. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.